This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The words of integration and guidance are by Jennifer Harvey. Race is real. Race is powerful. But race is also a social construct. This understanding of race begins to shed light on the conundrums of whiteness. In the United States, constructions of race have never been morally neutral. Racial construction processes have always meant and continue to mean today that persons with phenotypes marking them as white receive better treatment, better social access, and more institutional benefits than those with phenotypes that mark them of color. In other words, the construction of race is deeply and directly linked to white supremacist social structures. In this way, it becomes clear that white and black, for example, are not parallel differences. Each has real and distinct material meanings and different relationships to social structures. The realities of injustice embodied in these distinctions have moral implications that mean white and black cannot be seen, let alone celebrated and embraced in the same way. A brief look at the U.S. history in which race first emerged can help us wrestle with this recognition and its implications. On this land base, the origins of race lie in the enslavement of people of African descent and the genocide and displacement of indigenous peoples by people of European descent. Despite the way U.S. Americans usually retell the tale, the earliest European imperialists colonists, settlers, who arrived in the Virginia region, the area from which most of the founding fathers hail, were not seeking religious freedom. These were English elites pursuing wealth, and they quickly learned that tobacco would be their source for amassing it. Lucrative tobacco production requires large swaths of land and vast amounts of labor. The stage was thus set for your English relations with native people and African peoples. Our reading from scripture this morning is from Isaiah 56, chapter, verse 1, and then verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel I will gather them to I will gather others to them besides those already gathered Hear what the spirit is saying to the church The holy gospel according to Matthew chapter 15 verses 10 to 28 Then he called the crowd to him and said to them listen and understand 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? Probably wasn't the first time. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. Then he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. What to say right now? For those who don't know, I was away for a week and a half. I was on an eight-day clergy residency with the Shalem Institute outside of Washington, D.C., and staying in a nice, quiet Catholic retreat center and a little bit removed from all that's happening, uh, and came back and kind of thought about going right back. <laughs> But actually, we had uh, in our group of clergy at this program I was at, a pastor from Charlottesville. He told us the Tuesday before, uh, like five days before everything happened, that Charlottesville is about to be the center of the world this coming Saturday. And please hold it in prayer. And it turns out he was not wrong. And while there's a lot I could say today, and of course a lot of thoughts I have, I think perhaps we'd be better served to hear from two African-American women and to hear their voices and their experiences and their processing of what's happening in our world right now. Uh, and I've had opportunity to meet both of these women. I don't know them well, but I know their work well, and I think uh, what they have to say is good for us to hear. And so first we'll hear from Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, who works for Sojourners, lives in Washington, D.C., and she was there in Charlottesville. She's going to tell us a little bit of her experience and what it was like to be there as a clergy person standing for love and against hate and against racism. And then she's going to go into a little bit of how we got here uh, in a, as, as a nation. And then we're going to hear from Jackie Lewis, a uh, pastor in New York City, in terms of 
how do we understand this text? And Jesus engaging with a person who is ethnically and racially different. And then we'll close with a little bit of, well, what can we do today in these times that we're in? Does that sound okay? Okay. Lisa begins. On Saturday, August 12th, in Charlottesville, Virginia, I was faced with a choice. Would I pick up my cross? Jesus warns his disciples, if any want to become my followers, then let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Just before walking onto the street, she says, organizers of the Charlottesville clergy call, this was a call that went out for clergy to come and gather and stand together. She says, the organizers walked us through the changing dynamics of the situation. They told us there would be four times more white nationalists in Charlottesville than we had previously projected. And one quarter of the clergy that we thought would be there actually showed up. So do you hear that? And you're hearing that right before walking out of the street. Four times as many people that we're here to protest and to stand against. And only a quarter of those we thought were going to stand in solidarity with us. If we stepped onto the street, we were risking arrest, injury, or death from the police or the white nationalists themselves. We knew what we were walking into. We knew that we might not come back. I was hesitant and torn and almost didn't do it. I imagined the devastating loss my mother would feel upon hearing of my death in Charlottesville. I felt guilty for leaving her alone just before her second knee surgery. How would she make it through? I imagined not being there for my nieces and nephews and family. It was as if all that is most treasured in my life flashed before my eyes as the rest of the clergy walked out onto the street. And I hope you can hear the, the tension and the struggle. I think we like to imagine in a situation like this, of course I would stand there, of course I would be there, of course I would walk out. Would we? Would we? She says, I sat in silence and begged God for a definitive word. God spoke, be present. That was the call. Be present, even if it means being present on your way to the cross. I hugged some friends who were staying back to support in other ways and asked them to pray for us. I walked through the door and joined the rest of the clergy on the street. The night before at the mass prayer meeting, we were asked to reflect on why we were doing this. Here is what I wrote. I am here to walk in the tradition of my ancestors and bear the truth of God that we too are made in the image of God. I am here to bear witness that I was created to take up space in the world, to be, to live, to thrive, to lead, to love, and to be connected to all. What strikes me now is that to bear witness to my right to live, I had to be willing to die. 
This, she says, has been the cross that people of African descent and Native American peoples have borne for more than 500 years on U.S. soil. Ever since the demon called colonization led Europeans to claim the land, enslave, then remove its original inhabitants, then enslave and exploit people of African descent to work that land and build their country in the name of colonizing them, black people and indigenous Americans have had to risk death in order to bear witness to our right to live. It has been the cross that Latino and Asian American people have borne for the past 200 plus years since colonization stole land from Mexicans and declared it was now America. And Chinese men were exploited to build the railroads and fill empty slave cabins in the shadow of, of emancipation. Yes, Chinese men were the next wave exploited to build the U.S. economy after the Civil War. And now, today, Muslim and Sikh and LGBTQ people risk death to proclaim their right to live, to take up space, to breathe, to flourish. Colonization is the soil from which our nation sprung. Colonization's truth and rightness are the foundation upon which our entire way of life rests. Colonization created the political constructs of race for one purpose, to secure the exclusive right of dominion for those deemed white by the state. The logic of colonization led to the genocide, removal, and missionization of native peoples. It led the U.S. to break every single treaty it ever made to the native people of our land, and as we saw recently at Standing Rock, such attitudes and approaches still persist today. And the same colonizing spirit still permeates the white church. Today, the colonizing spirit leads Christian conferences to flash all or nearly all white speaker lineups without a blush, promote white worship music as the gold Christian standard around the world, and build mega churches in the mold of mega malls and amusement parks that serve hundreds of thousands, music and scripture, disconnected from parishioners' local contexts and needs. This is the spirit that led the majority of the entire white church to vote for a man who promised to take our country back. We can't get around it. The spirit of colonization drives white America, always has, and the church is no different. This truth nearly drove me to despair today as I poured through the tags and messages from well-meaning white evangelical leaders. They called Facebook followers to listen to leaders of color like me. Some wrote blog posts distancing themselves from Trump and outlining steps Christians can take to fight racism. Others simply shouted encouragement on Twitter, and it was appreciated. But tears fell from my eyes three times today when I asked myself one question. Will their followers vote differently next time? Will my friend's followers vote in a way that ends mass incarceration and modern-day prison slavery next time? Will they vote in a way that welcomes immigrants to our nations and gives undocumented people a way to stay and to thrive? Will they vote in a way that preserves the economic safety net for poor people and moves health care further, providing health care for all? Will they vote in a way that makes Congress protect every American's right to vote? 
I knew the answer. I know the answer. They won't. Why? Because when talking about the gospel, my white evangelical friends tend to leave that stuff out. In the evangelical worldview, if it's gospel, it's essential. If it's not gospel, then it's extracurricular. So exploitation of people and voter disenfranchisement of people and breaking up families through mass deportation is extracurricular. And facing down the colonizing spirit in the white church is extracurricular. An evangelical since 1983, I went through a deep transformation of my understanding of the gospel, she writes, when I embarked on a pilgrimage that led me to confront my own colonized mind. I had been viewing the gospel through the lens of people that benefited from colonization. But that simplified, defanged, disconnected gospel made no sense when I considered this question. Would my ancestors who walked the Trail of Tears enslaved in South Carolina and Virginia, would they consider a gospel with nothing to say to their actual colonized lives good news? When I saw my colonized gospel through their eyes, the answer was clear. No. Then I realized something even more profound. Every word of every book in the scripture was written by a person who was colonized or under the threat of colonization by empire. The good news of the Bible must be considered good news to the colonized. One thing gives me hope. The cross, which was originally an instrument of persecution for, their, for those who dared to denounce colonizing empire. The cross stands at the center of our faith. The cross calls us to renounce and denounce any spirit that would lead us to marginalize, minimalize, ignore, exploit, or erase the image of God among us. It calls us to choose loss before we serve ourselves at others' expense. The cross calls us to deep interrogation of our hearts, our theology, our daily practices, and all assumptions that lead to the crushing of the image of God on earth. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. The only hope for our nation is that Christians will listen to Jesus. Indeed, and this takes us to our text today. We've got some work to do today. I hope you're all right with that. And when I saw that the text this week in the lectionary was about Jesus having an engagement with a person who is ethnically, culturally, racially different, Wow. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for that. And so a few reflections from Jackie Lewis, uh, African-American preacher at Middle Collegiate Church in New York City. She says, if I were Jesus' public relations expert, I would not have included today's text in Scripture. I just left it out of the Bible. 
Jesus does not look good here. Jesus had just told the Pharisees and scribes that what defiles a person is what comes out of their mouth. And then what does he go ahead and do? He says a pretty ethnocentric thing to a woman looking for his help. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Do we hear what he's saying there? I mean no disrespect to Jesus, she says. He's my guy. But I think this encounter healed Jesus as well. I mean, the human part of Jesus was a product of his culture, his Sitzemleben, which is fancy German for his situation in life. Not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs? We love Jesus, but we can't approve of that ethnocentric racist talk. The Canaanite woman uses her words to speak to Jesus in a way that shakes up his understanding of his call to ministry. She wakes him up to his own bias. After this encounter with another, Jesus is woke. She says, I know many of you will be offended by this. Perfect Jesus needing to be corrected, schooled, taught that Canaanite lives matter? I didn't write that text, she says. I'm just saying. (laughs) Read it and see what's up. I think this encounter helped Jesus to understand that not only did Jewish lives matter, but Canaanite lives mattered as well. And until the lives of the least of the people matter, no life actually does. This was a lesson for the ancient followers of Jesus and a lesson for us. We who are the church must take seriously this text that shines a light on the humanity of Jesus. Like him, we can be bound by our culture. We can be held hostage to our fears and insecurities. Like our leader, our rabbi, our role model, we can get caught up in the worth of those who are most like us. And we can misunderstand that every human being, no matter their race, ethnicity, religion, sexuality, or orientation, every human being is a child of God, reverently and wonderfully made in God's image. Like our Savior, we can get it wrong. And then in close encounters with the other, we too can have our hearts and our minds changed as well. Well, we might ask, well, what can we actually do right now, right? It feels like chaos happening in our country. What can we do? Might be tempting to stay home and sheet cake, right? Just pig out on dessert, put our feet up, and stay out of it. I don't know that that's our best option, though. A few options that I came across. We should be present, we as people of faith. As religion has played a big part in our current national moral failing, we need to make sure that the face of religion in this country is also marching, making statements, and clearly denouncing white supremacists, KKK, and Nazi ideology. 
Don't assume you're in charge. I think that's written especially to those of us who are white. Don't assume you're in charge. If you'd like to be a part of organizing, then show up at the organizing meetings. When you show up at the protest, it's time to listen. If you're white, showing up to proclaim that black lives matter, then you need to take orders, stand in line, and be part of the chorus. It's time to take directions. Find out the level of risk. Most organizers will tell you the level of risk, and you can kind of gauge, is this appropriate, right? Am I ready to be involved at this level? If there's training involved, go to the training. Follow your conscience. If something's going on that you don't agree with, don't feel guilty to say, I'm not going to participate in that. If you're not in a position to be arrested or face, violent, face violence, then perhaps there's another way to protest. If you're involved with digital activism, right, sharing stuff, social media, email, that kind of thing, helping people learn things, because that's what you can do, then don't let people shame you for not doing enough. Do what you can, when you can, in the way that you can. Be humble. Invite others. If you feel like you want to do more, donate. Volunteer. If people are needed to pick up trash, let's be ready to pick up trash. And one thing, of course, we can do is listen to African-American voices and other people of color, as well as queer and immigrant voices, such as we've done today. We must hear and heed these voices. Yet another female African-American preacher, Will Gaffney, says this. She says, it needs saying because it keeps happening. White folk, it is your job to figure out what to do about your white supremacist culture. It was helpful when I read that. Because I think a lot of us in this time want to turn to our friends of color and say, what do we do? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? And I think we do need to be asking those questions. But she says, when you ask me what to do or how to do it or to provide resources, provide you resources on your white supremacist culture, you are shifting your work to me. So I think we need to hear that as well. So part of that uh, includes those of us who are white waking up to our privilege to our complicity and racial bias and the structures that are benefiting from those realities, whether we're aware of it or not. Someone asked Lisa Sharon Harper on Twitter, what does it mean to be white? And she responded with some really good stuff. And I'm just going to lay that out. And I think this is part of doing our work. Baseline, being white in the U.S., equals being born into a racial category originally designated as the only group with the right to rule through vote or through governance. According to the founding documents, if you weren't white, you weren't voting. Being white in the US means being the legal standard for full humanity. According to the founding documents, if you were African-American, uh, Native American, or other, you were considered a three-fifths or so literally a fraction of a human being. Being white in the US means benefiting from a politically formed category created for one purpose to determine who has the right to steward our nation. Being white and being from the US, Midwest, or the West equals benefiting from wealth accumulated from free land given by the government through the Homestead Act. 
Being white in the U.S. after World War II means benefiting from free college education given by the government through the GI Bill. Others, non-whites, were blocked from access to those funds. Being white in the U.S. means benefiting from racialized FHA, that's Federal Housing Administration designation for desired housing. The result is that land value automatically is higher in white areas. Being white in the U.S. means three out of four of you have absolutely no friends of color. Being white in the U.S. means 75% of the public unconsciously assumes you are always innocent, good, competent, and honest. Being white in the U.S. means understanding the world through three cultural lenses. Radical individualism, relationalism, anti-structuralism. In other words, I, me and my independent world can make of the world anything I want it to be. Nothing can stand in my way. I can be all I can be. That's a very white way to view the world. Being white in the U.S. means having the achievements and innovations of others hidden from you, minimized, stolen, or misappropriated. For example, being white means mostly having no idea African Americans invented the stoplight, peanut butter, the banjo, the Charleston, ga the gas mask, blood plasma banks. Being white means mostly having no idea that Latinos invented the color TV, the neonatal artificial bubble, the contraceptive pill, the ballpoint pen. Being white means having mostly no idea that Arabs and Persians invented universities, coffee, <laughs> Surgery, musical scales, the lute, the toothbrush, algebra. The coffee and toothbrush go together somehow there. <laughs> Being white means mostly having no idea that Asian Americans invented Play-Doh, the USB, the artificial liver, the nectarine, deep focus cinematography. Being white means having no, mostly no idea Native Americans invented aspirin, bunk beds, hockey, avocados, and the democratic principles of the U.S. Constitution. Being poor and white in the U.S. means being pitted against other ethnic groups while the top 1% exploited your label, labor, cut your safety net, and then said to you, well, at least you're not black. That was her list on Twitter. And then she says, forgot one. Being white in the US means you and or ancestors exchanged your European ethnic heritage, a good thing, for an artificial racial identity that offered privilege. It's not too late to reroute yourselves in what's real. Our ethnic heritage, our family stories, our DNA, all good things. And then to forsake the lie of race. This is just a beginning, friends. But we need to know this stuff and know it well. Not to simply feel bad about ourselves, but for an awareness of what it means to be white and to not be white in our nation. For awareness of how structures in our society have arisen that automatically benefit those of us who are white, whether we know it or have any idea about it or not. Jackie Lewis closes her reflection on today's text this way. We can get it wrong, but we can also get it right. We have to get it right. If we believe in the radical call 
of the love of Jesus on our lives, we must be clear that we are not saved until everyone is saved. And they are not saved. The people of God are not saved unless there is food on the table, clothing on their backs, and health care for their families. They are not saved if those paid to protect them are allowed to kill them with impunity. We who follow Jesus in the way have to seek ways to racially and culturally diversify our communities and our lives so that we can know the other and be changed by the other. This might make us uncomfortable like it did with Jesus and this Canaanite woman. But if we do it, it may just bring about the kingdom of God here and now in our midst. Amen. And namaste. Would you pray with me? O God of light, we have seen a great darkness filled with hatred, words of malice, and acts of horror. And we are speechless, shaken but grateful for a spirit that intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And we are speech-filled, courageously naming for all to hear the love that you have taught us. We repent of all the ways that we have consciously or unconsciously contributed to the racial divisions in our world. As people walking in great darkness, we need your great light. We need your great love. We need your great power. We need you. Amen. to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Mm-hmm.